0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/slash/fifteen to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Escapemaker.com. Visit a farm, escape through the net. Visit Escapemaker.com for more.
2: All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Each week on air on The Farm Report, we talk about the ins and outs of the food system. Off air, I'm the executive director for the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm excited to say we have a jam-packed show for you today. We're continuing our conversation exploring the meat industry Uh, getting prepped up for the Slow Meat Conference, which is happening uh, the first weekend in June, hosted by our friends at Slow Food USA. We're going to start the show off today with Gabriel Crenza. He is the Strategic Advisor of Food Procurement for the National Resource Defense Council. Gabriel, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Erin. Pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you on. So, for folks who um, aren't familiar with the NRDC story, um, you know, your organization started in 1970 with kind of a mission to protect our land, air, and water. Um, Started actually, I think, the same year that Earth Day was created. Um, And now you guys are, I was surprised. I didn't realize you you were quite so big, employing nearly uh, 500 scientists, lawyers, and policy experts. And um, millions of members and online activists um, for folks who who maybe aren't as familiar with the scope of your work, can you talk a little bit about the role that that you play within the organization and and how NRDC got involved with the kind of food conversation?
3: Of course, of course, and it's a it's a bit of a long story so feel free to jump in
2: uh,
3: wherever <laughs> but but I'll start with so, so the Natural, Natural Resources Defense Council, as you said, has been around um, for quite some time now. And while it began largely as a uh, litigating NGO, um, you know, going, going on to Capitol Hill and really working to effect um, change for, for the environment, um, you know, through, through the government, so to speak, uh, we have since really expanded uh, our programs um, and and ways in which we can affect change through many different outlets. And um, starting about ten years ago, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Alan Hirschowitz who is a um, he was a senior resource um, conservationist at, at NRDC. Um, started working with basically looking at um, ways in which you can quote unquote green large events and the impacts that. Uh, massive events, whether they be um, entertainment or sports or uh, large galas, um, the Grammys, uh, the Academy Awards, et cetera. Just the impacts that those had and also the uh, potential to really uh, communicate best environmental practices to the audiences. And um, we actually started with... Uh, the Oscars about 10 years ago, and then very quickly as um, momentum gained moving into uh, the sports world, the professional sports world, and NRDC um, started to engage um, the National Football League, the National Hockey League, um, basketball, and Major League Baseball um, in small efforts that could have big impacts small environmental ep- ep- efforts that could have big impacts and then um also really communicate to fans and the last 10 years it's really been focused around um energy use uh waste and and water so waste diversion and water and and um we started the green sports alliance which has since now moved in it's its own operating nonprofit and uh we were, I mean, just incredible. There's 300 teams around the world that that work with the Green Sports Alliance and and make these, uh, really make these kind of commitments um, towards best practices. And I can go into them, but um, I, I share that story now because uh, just about two years ago, uh, the conversation of food at sporting events really started to. Uh, become a topic of interest to many folks, just given um, you know the quantities, and then also ac- access to um, largely a population that we could uh, really share a-, a strong message with, and one one in which I think everyone can connect. And um, I was I was brought on um, to work uh, specifically in food strategy. So I actually hold two titles. I'm the uh, senior advisor for food procurement with the Green Sports Alliance, mm-hmm. and then and then also um, with NRDC, I work with NRDC in their food procurement area. And within NRDC, I'll share, um, I actually work, and there's lots of different acronyms, and they get all sorts of confusing, but I work for um, a very fun, small, dynamic team within NRDC called the Center for Market Innovation, and that was started, I, I want to say, uh, maybe about... 12 years ago um, by folks that uh, largely hold uh, MBAs and it's looking at large business solutions that also can you know have a triple bottom line impact but I would say that the big bottom line we're looking at is the green one and uh, so a lot of a lot of focus on impact investing and um, really the energy energy market and uh, most recently again and I think it's just wonderful timing is, is food and how do we, how do we affect change um, within a highly industrialized uh, system for food production and, um, you know, where are the, where are the big kind of elephants, so to speak, or the big bulls in the room, and um, that's, I believe, in, in meat production. So we, um, within the sporting world, um, and there's a lot of parallel. I mean, there's. It, it might sound like big teams, but there's a lot of communication um, back and forth. And the Green Sports Alliance is a wonderful um, avenue to to get this uh, message out. And um, the Center for Market Innovation works uh, hand in hand, really, uh, kind of from the the industry side all the way up. Um, to consumer to really find little leverage points that that can um, bring about about quite a bit of change. So I hope that was, um, you know, a bit of a thorough overview for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely getting us oriented. I have to say I, and maybe this is because I'm a person who has always had kind of food at the forefront of my brain, but I'm kind of consistently surprised in what I feel is kind of a late adaptation of looking at food and food production and food consumption and food waste by the environmental community um, because it seems like f- producing, you know, it's also like just kind of one of those basic human needs and and, and yet I feel like it's, it's a newer component to um, groups like the NRDC who are doing um, this type of environmental work um, and, and the same goes for kind of animal welfare organizations, with, which tend to have, I feel like, a focus on, um, you know, wild animals or animals that we've de- domesticated for pets and kind of largely leaves out this whole swath of, of livestock, which is something so many of us really engage with kind of intimately on a, on a daily, if not like multiple times of day basis. And, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit from where you sit As to um, you know, do does it seem like a late adaptation to you too, or do I just not know the history well enough?
3: (laughs) So I I would say we have largely worked on on if we want specifically livestock issues. Um, It's been it's been a key focus of ours, and what's fascinating about the livestock industry is it really does transcend. So many different issues, whether it be land, land use, water quality, um, climate. Um, also, uh, you know, government subsidizing and, and where different uh, resources from the government go to support, support agriculture. So for NRDC, it's just, it really is a, a topic that encompasses many, many different projects of ours. Mm-hmm. Um I would not say by any by any means we are late you know late to the game in in working on these issues but because it has been um, very much a uh, an organization for many years that that works works in the litigation world that that much of that that work was not um, I guess the the flagpole of our our messaging so to speak and you know, we worked a lot with the farm bill mm-hmm. um, the last the, the latest iteration and, and um, you know previous workings before that uh, this works specifically with um, so I, I should also I should also share that you know we are we're actively engaged right now NRDC is in working to um, support and define a comprehensive definition of what better beef production can look like in the United States, and a um, really a collaborative um, and comprehensive standard that uh, is looking to cast the net as wide as we can. Um, I I think it would be a disservice to say we're looking to define what sustainable beef is, Uh
2: because
3: I don't think that that may not be definable, or that may not just be the right appropriation of words to the topic. But um, better beef production for sure, and certainly there's some you know key measuring points. Um, I think again, this is something that NRDC um, and kind of our different, our many different fingers. We have five five national offices um, that. It has been a topic of of long concern. Um, We have had an an ongoing antibiotics campaign in the poultry industry for almost five years now, Um, and we're starting to see, I mean, there's there's many folks working on that, but you're starting to see uh, that conversation elevated quite a lot with businesses taking on commitments, which is really great to see. Yeah, Um, definitely,
2: like, lots of action um, from the NRDC. And I didn't mean to imply that, you know, you guys aren't kind of in a robust way pursuing work in the food space. Um, I I just, to me, it's like it does always just, like, seem interesting like how much the food conversation has expanded and and how many kind of like tendrils and rabbit holes and paths it takes you down i'm curious you know you had said earlier one of the tenants of your work is really identifying kind of the big players or the elephants in the room or or the leverage points for affecting kind of large-scale change and i'm wondering if you had any thoughts on um the the Walmart and um, Sam's Club USA recent announcement with regards to humane treatment of farm animals and responsible use of antibiotics in farm animals. I mean, of course they are a huge player um, in that, in that space.
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think there's, there are some really key um, areas we focus on to, to really see if we can um, affect you know, small actions that might affect big change or even big actions. But again, yes, I would say the, the major buyers um, within that very confusing, often um, intertwining supply chain of, of livestock, specifically beef, but poultry and pork as well. Um, the large buyers really have uh, quite a bit of, um, power to, to shift, um, you know, shift production from the ground up. And, and yes, we have done quite a bit of, uh, outreach and, and continue to do so to work, uh, with large buyers to support them. So, kind uh, of advise and, uh, work with, um, has been a big, I have, I have been witness to, uh, there, there being a fair amount of, um, effort to, to really work with organizations to develop strategies for them. And that's kind of where some of the um, cost analysis of, of kind of business plans come into play
2: mm-hmm.
3: and really looking into the numbers of, well, if you were to buy antibiotic-free chicken, uh, is the supply out there, and could we, you know, could we really figure out a way for it, it to be, you know, Cost impact, and that's um, you know, it's a, it, there's two forces at play. There's you know what what and many of us in the environmental world share, which is uh, really kind of a, a deep feeling of <laughs> wanting to do what what's going to uh, fix some of these problems at all costs, and then also uh, working within the scope of how do we you know how do we how do we really uh, frame frame this in a way where it, it makes sense and it, and it works. Um, for these businesses to you know, remain at least competitive, right? Sure. To remain well, businesses and and, and also uh, take on better and better. So it's a. Uh...
2: I guess I mean, like to draw. I mean, to me, you know, you're taking a tactic instead of you know, uh, kind of in one extreme version, standing outside of a corporate office and, and protesting with signs to kind of getting and gaining gaining entree. To these kind of internal decision-making spaces, and making yourself as an organization uh, a research, a, re- a resource, and like approachable for a group like that, I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little point of view as if we were a fly on the wall in some of these initial, you know, initial conversations. If there's a, you know, a large um, Food buyer that you are setting up some initial meetings with. What are you know? What are some of the jumping off points for them? Um, what is do you think kind of prompting them reaching out to you um, or the NRDC to say like, hey, can you help us think through or strategize? I mean, do they come to you? Do you go to them? And and what are those starting points kind of look like?
3: Well, I would say it's a good question. I would say that um, the conversation start uh, can start either way. Uh, we definitely, I actively do a fair a fair amount of outreach, but it, again, our work is, um, you know, completely donation-based, funded, much like I'm sure yours is, but
4: yeah.
3: our, our advising is all pro bono, so that alone um, is very helpful in getting a conversation going because we're not in for, for it for anything other than, you know, kind of environmental wins, and we have framed the... Offer as an environmental and a business win, and that there's um, really looking to understand their industry. So again, like beef, right now is at an all-time high, and uh, is it going to be attractive for them if we are finding um, better beef that demands an even higher premium? Well, that's a that that is a challenge right now. And do I think that better beef should demand a premium? Yeah, probably should. It it uh, it's produced in um, you know, a much more kind of holistic way. But with that said, um, we've also we've also looked to. So the one big number that always stands out to me, and I think in the, the slow food movement, it's one that it's kind of it's, it's a hard one, but in kind of 97 percent of all the beef produced in our country uh, is is grain-finished, you know, comes from corn. And our supply of, of pasture-finished beef is, is relatively small. And how can we... So there's big businesses that just by default, and they, they might be able to source and serve, um, you know, some meals in, in certain areas. I'm thinking, again, I'm thinking of, like, a big sports stadium. Right. And they're a great example because I think it's almost like a... A microcosm of what maybe a, you know, a large restaurant chain might look like where the menu has different options and they come in at different price points. Um, but within a stadium, right, the, there's, there's going to be the option of some nice grass fed burger. It may come at a bigger expense. It may not. It may just be harder to find. Um, but oftentimes these, uh, these, these, kind of operations directors or these head chefs um you know really i have to empathize with them in some way because there is um there's kind of that push pull of price and then there's the push pull of quantity and finally there's there's a lot of confusion around what is better um and what you know what are small steps that can be taken and right now i think there's a lot of um well this is an obvious statement, but there's a tremendous amount of room for improvement in uh, livestock feeding, and specifically in their finishing phase in the feedlots. And um, it, you know, it's it's heartbreaking that the the system has, um, I would say, industrialized to that point. But there's still, I, I think, demonizing it without having uh, any any strong um, solutions is a uh, is kind of a, a disservice to the whole movement. So, are there, you know, are there really specific areas within the feedlot industry that you can begin to look into the nuances of the practices and say this is better, this is not, um, this is harmful, this is less harmful. Um,
2: yeah, kind of flipping that around, and I think what's interesting to me about working, uh, looking specifically at the beef industry, is that on some level, because of their their size and their their biology, that uh, you know steers you can't you can't ab- abuse, uh, and I think uh, I think that word is the right word. You can't abuse in the same way that you can, um, you know, poultry or other smaller, uh, smaller livestock, um, I, I, feel like in, in a lot of ways we haven't, f- you know, we haven't figured out, um, that, 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 I guess beef already has like, a a leg up on other livestock and, and poultry because of its size. It really confines the, the level of confinement and the growing protocols, you know, that you're never going to see, you know, kind of a vertical, you know, beef farm and the crowding and the caging in the same way you would see in poultry. So it does feel like a space that's ripe to, um, you know, find some spaces to open up. I'm wondering if you're, you know, kind of looking away from the people purchasing and looking back towards the farmers who are producing Um, Is there a level of kind of uh, eagerness or desire for your services? And if so, by whom? Are are you getting these from, uh, you know, feedlot operators who are like, hey, we want to figure out a different way? Or or are you getting kind of um, asks and pushes from folks who are on the grass-based system already and looking for an enhanced kind of like marketplace or, or more support or or more guidelines that um, undergird the type of production they're already employing
3: another great question <laughs> um, and and a, and a big one but I I will start with simple answer of both I mean I so I managed a cattle ranch for four years uh, in Northwest Montana and uh, it was a third generation Ranch that started as a, a cow calf operation, whereas you you know you auction your your calves at two years, basically two feedlots, and then they you have no idea where they go, and um, then they end up on a plate somewhere a couple years later. Um, and there was keen interest in uh, reducing our our operations in terms of how many calves we had on the property. And expanding how many cows we could finish on the property. I mean, there's no doubt that the grass-fed market, um, if the, the grass, the grass-fed beef market, and I, and even kind of the more specific term of grass-finished beef or pasture-finished beef market, is is really a uh, is a growing one. And there's a lot of attractiveness to it. Um, it's really a it's a matter of finding. Um, consistency in the meat itself because um, you know not all grass is the same so there's a there's a much deeper focus on the on the ranch producer level um, and then also consistency in, in buying so having if, if we're able to say to regional ranching communities around the country um there is uh... there is a number of interested parties in uh so we're looking we're looking a lot at at the uh, cooperative models of of producing and purchasing um because it's time and time again really shown success in other uh in other markets i mean just uh, much, a much different crop of coffee for example um has seen some tremendous gains in in working in a in a cooperative uh model um there is I would say there may even be more interest in uh, beginning to, to take on improvements in the kind of sm- the small, small midsize um, feedlots, and that's and that's a kind of small midsize when there's not numbers of head of cattle there. But where you're really thinking about these, these owner-operators already have Pretty deep-seated value for um, how they're how they're producing um, beef, and if there's a way in which um, you know we can go on property and say, um, looking at at key specific places for Im- improvement, for example, where are you buying your feed from? How is your feed produced? What's the average? Um, time to maturity once your cows uh, you know go into a feedlot and looking to reduce that time um, but no doubt there is there's interest from uh, producers throughout you know throughout the supply chain of, of beef and I would say and ch- chicken is different and you you definitely uh, made that point clear and I think one of the key reasons is just the age to maturity of these of you know, these animals and um, in the lifetime of a of a cow, and we're talking about uh, you know hundreds of m- mature chickens can right. kind of go to market in the in, in the life of one cow. So the, and also I think you know we we both have said it without saying it, but I think the reason that beef is such an important focus is because it has such a massive impact on our environment, and it's. Um, its supply chain is not vertically integrated and it's very fragmented and it's really, um, it, there's a challenge in locating where the, um, <laughs> the, the chain of custody is or where the, um, deep, um, kind of wins or areas, again, leverage points for improvement. Um, there's many different strategic pathways to, um, shifting this industry and I think, Absolutely working on the on the producer level and if you can so we were able to exactly that in montana shift shift much of our production over to a, a pasture finished one and also be able to build um, key buying relationships with uh, local restaurants in Missoula and um, kind of that surrounding um, a kind of urban urban hub that really had a, a growing understanding of wanting to know where your food and specifically your meat comes from and how it was raised. So I I think that was a long winded answer to your question.
2: Well, lots to cover. I mean, I kind of set you up there. Um, Well, Gabrielle, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Um, I'm looking forward to connecting with you more in Denver. And I will advise folks, um, check out the NRDC and their work. And they can also find you on Twitter. You are at Gabrielle underscore Krenza, which is K-R-E-N-Z-A. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you on.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you for having me.
2: So we are going to take a short station break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Leah Garces, um, the U.S. Director for Compassion and World Farming, to hear a little bit more about this Walmart uh, announcement that we alluded to at the top of the show. So hang tight. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we'll be right back.
5: EscapeMaker.com, a guide to local getaways, is offering a two-night farm escape that includes lodging, a visit to an apiary, wine tasting at a vineyard, and a special tour of Bubba Link Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey. Transportation is included. For details, visit EscapeMaker.com or come by the Bubba Link Dairy stand at the new open-air Fulton Stall Market on Front Street in the South Street Seaport District. Located where New York City's public food markets began in the 1800s, Fulton Stall Market is open weekends 10 to 5 and is the first farmer's market in the city to offer ready-to-eat foods made by the farmers who produce them, along with a radio station, live music, and cooking workshops for families. Now offering spring flowers and plants, organic vegetables, pizza made in a wood-burning oven using farm ingredients, local fruit preserves, yogurts, and ice cream, and Bubble Link Dairy's famous artisanal cheese and breads. The market is a great reason to rediscover the authentic seaport. For more information, visit FultonStallMarket.com.
1: This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
5: And we are
2: back. We are on the line with Leah Garces. She is the U.S. Director for Compassion and World Farming back with us um, to give us a little bit more info on this new Walmart uh, position announcement. Leah, thanks for taking some time to join us.
4: Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be back on the show.
2: So Walmart, definitely not the uh, organization that we here at the station are used to holding up as as an example for some progressive steps forward in the animal welfare or um, antibiotics or sustainable food space. Um, Are we just Uh totally getting things wrong here? Give us the update.
4: So on Friday, as you know, um, Walmart made um, a big announcement. They're the largest retailer in the country, and they announced their first comprehensive animal welfare program. Um, and that's a big deal. It's really a kind of putting a flagpole down and saying, this is the direction of travel for Walmart. Walmart is making animal welfare matter to its business. Um, and so that's the first time they've done that, and it's it's a big deal. Um, I really think it's a game changer for the market in the United States for animal welfare.
2: So how did they decide, do you think, or do you have any insight on, on what to say in this position? I mean, who is helping Walmart with their kind of strategy and with their thinking around these topics?
4: Um, there's a number of uh, stakeholders involved, and, and um, we have been involved since 2012 with something called the Business Benchmark for Farm Animal Welfare, in which Walmart was benchmarked. Um, And in that particular benchmark, they didn't score very well. Uh, But with this new position paper, they will um, because they're doing more disclosure, more transparency about farm animal welfare. Um, I think they're very determined to improve their image. Um, You know, they had six undercover investigations put out by Mercy for Animal in the last uh, year or so. Um, they've had other uh, negative kind of images associated with their brand and farm animal welfare, and I think they're learning, looking to turn that around. Uh, animal welfare matters to their customers, and they know that. Um, and I think this policy tries to address some of the most egregious issues like close confinement and pain management. And it's it's putting, like I said, putting a flagpole down and saying we're moving away from those practices. And I think that's especially important for their suppliers to hear. The largest retailer in the country is moving away from gestation crates and battery cages. And there's no point in reinvesting in those sorts of industries. There's no point in reinvesting in a new gestation crate because the direction of travel for the industry is away from that.
2: Well, it's definitely super exciting. And also, I mean, really the largest retailer in the country. What do you think? I mean, what kind of gauntlet... Has this thrown down for other uh, grocery chains and food suppliers?
4: It's definitely raising the bar. I mean, they're raising the baseline standard, and they're saying, you know, this is the new normal. The new normal is no antibiotics, you know, and moving away from these closed confinement systems like gestation crates from other pigs, barren battery cages for laying hens, and pill crates for cats. That's the new normal. If you just want to survive in the industry, you need to get rid of those practices. And then, you know, the leaders are going to want to do even better than that, the ones who want to get ahead in the market.
2: So how do we respond to folks who I know are going to reach out to me and say, you know, this is bullshit, it's a it's a position mm-hmm. paper, it's not a policy paper, it's a PR move, and you're supporting it by having, um, you know, by giving it space on your show?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that, and I hope customers will continue to hound Walmart and say, now carry through with the statement, you know, carry through. And the years ahead will be the years that determine whether Walmart does or doesn't. And it's going to be very important for, for consumers and watchdogs to keep the pressure on and say, you know, you made, you put the flagpole down, now follow through with that, with that commitment. Do you think,
2: are there other uh, retailers who on a smaller scale have followed this same kind of trajectory where they announce a kind of thought change position change and then follow it up. I mean is there kind of a is there a landscape for this type of shift maybe on a smaller scale or other places we can look to to say like oh yeah, these guys did it first and, and this is how it's going and this is the time frame we can be expecting.
4: Absolutely. Um, I think in the last uh, six months, we've seen some of the, um, the the three biggest food service companies in the world, Airmark, Compass, and sedexo make announcements um, about moving away from battery cages and for all of for both their liquid and their shell eggs. Um, and each time a company makes an announcement like this, they're making an improvement. So you know, companies like that will first make an and have made improvement, um, announcements around shelled eggs, and then they'll say, okay, now we're moving on liquid eggs. Um, and some companies have started with just this kind of comprehensive policy, and then they go for more, more species-specific policies. So we're definitely seeing a trend in the market where, um, you know, just to be considered... Normal in the market now. You need to you need to say animal welfare matters to your business. You need to have a corporate policy on this, and you need to say to consumers what you're doing about it.
2: So, should we be concerned about? I mean, this is kind of a, a weird question for me to be asking us but I'm wondering if we should be concerned about farmers, about producers who, you know, they have this large scale investment in these kind of crates, in these production systems, and we're essentially, um, you know, asking them to turn their whole operation around and to kind of rethink everything they're doing and, and all that infrastructure, uh, you know, it has kind of in a, a way that the flip has been switched toward towards phasing that out. Um, you know, is yeah. there is there things we need to be thinking about when we think about from a sheer capacity, ability, transition space as consumers, you know, it's not like you can. Flip the switch, and there's suddenly a whole supply chain that is now meeting our new criteria. Like, how do we, how do we think about that um, landscape yeah. from the farmer's uh-huh. perspective?
4: Well, I think companies have, have thought about that, and that's why you see in Walmart, there's no commitment date, which is one of the drawbacks of their statement. So they haven't set a date for implementation, and I think that's because they don't know how long it's going to take for some of their farmers to transition out of these systems. I think they will make. I hope they will make a, a date announcement in future when they have some more information. Um, but typically a gestation crate, when it's when it's newly built, has a lifespan of about nine years, eight years. So that's why you saw McDonald's, when they made an announcement um, a few years back, they said, maybe about 18 months ago, two years ago, they said they were moving away from gestation crates and they would no longer be taking pork from gestation crates by 2022. So they gave a fair amount of time to say, even if you invested today, the lifespan of that gestation crate comes to an end at nine years. That's when you should be replacing them anyway. So it's saying, we'll let you live out your investments, and then at the end of that, you need to transition. And I think that's a fair way for farmers to, to give, be given enough time to think about how to transition and not to lose their investment.
2: And because you know your organization, I know you are the U.S. director, but you—it is an international organization. When statements come out like this in the U.S., can you give us a little sense if you know, kind of how they're heard in other parts of the world? I mean, are people like, "Wow, they're really like doing something amazing," or they're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that's a problem there"?
4: No, you know, it's funny. I mean, we have like a—you know—we are we are an international organization, and we had like Facebook um, congratulations you know from norway like i was reading one today from norway saying you know this is wonderful um i mean no one doesn't know that walmart is a giant and that it has you know this enormous capacity to either improve or make the lives of animals worse um so i think everyone um understands that, that, that this is a big deal um no matter where they're from um you know in the eu gestation crates are banned um And battery cages are banned already and wheel crates are banned. So, you know, what we're talking about doing in the U.S. is the legislative minimum in the EU. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's not hard and that companies don't need help and and don't need sort of support in getting to that minimum. And that's what we're here to do.
2: So uh, real quick before we let you go, what can folks look forward to from Compassion and World Farming over the summer? Anything that we should be keeping our eyes on?
4: Yeah, we're having something called Pastor Poultry Week coming up, um, July thirteenth um, to the nineteenth, where we highlight best practice, and we're going to be um, looking at celebrating farms and restaurants that are swapping out using conventional chicken and using um, pasture-raised chicken from farms, you know, local farms uh, such as White Oak Pastures and and others. Um, so check out our website. at to find out which restaurants to go to and which farmers we're working with. It's going to be really fun.
2: Awesome, Leah. Thank you so much for jumping on the call and helping us understand this announcement.
4: My pleasure, as always.
2: So we're going to take another quick break. Um, If you want to hear more from Leah, definitely check her out on Twitter at Leah underscore compassion. And when we come back, it's time for the Escape Maker segment. Stay tuned. It's a fun one this week. We're going to be talking with Steve Penning of Penning's Farm, and that is coming up after the break. my new favorite parts of the show uh, the escape maker segment where we learn a little bit more about some awesome places uh, to check out here in the new york and greater new york metro area today we're taking a little trip up to hudson valley we are on the line with steve penning of penning's farm steve thanks for joining us
1: Yes. How are you this afternoon, Aaron?
2: I am great. So I was so tickled to learn that your family got their start in the egg business as a tulip farm in Holland, um, uh, before moving, you know, relocating the business and the farm and the family, obviously, to New York State. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about how your um, your family got involved Our in agriculture? Started, yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh,
1: you know, it's all. It's all uh, primarily about my parents. Uh, they, my dad, was an immigrant uh, from Holland uh, um, back in 1940 or so. Um, came here uh, selling tulip bulbs for the family business in Holland, which still exists there. There's second and third generation Penning'ses over there still farming and. Uh, uh um growing bulbs, uh tulip daffodils, you know, the hyacinths, all the Easter stuff and spring bulb business is very strong yet in Holland and uh exported all across the world. So um that's what we that's what he came here doing and uh uh you know, fell in love with America like so many people that uh, immigrated here uh did and uh continue to and um uh settled in the Orange County area in Goshen and um shortly thereafter met my mother and uh decided to just make America his home in uh Orange County and uh then they 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 worked their way down to Warwick where we still are today and uh we're on one of the farms that he purchased back in the 1960s that we still own. Uh we were dairy farmers for many years and in the last uh 25 years, 30 years, we got into the orchard business and through the orchard business we've evolved into many many uh, more things and developed uh um um Developed a very diversified uh, agricultural agri- entertainment type operation.
2: Yeah, I would say the m- many, many options. So, you guys do the orchard stuff, but you also have a pub. There's like a beer garden, ice cream. I mean, it sounds like you can kind of do anything you want. Um, yeah.
1: When, I know.
2: <laughs> When we had over your it way,
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> it scares me, but it's true. And uh, it's kind of been, we've built it to be a place for all ages. Um, You know, we we built our business on the the farm market garden center um, with an ice cream stand um, and a little petting zoo, so it was very family-oriented towards little kids, you know, young families with little kids, things like that, uh, with a lot of fall activities because still our primary business is pick your own apples in the fall. Um, with pick your own pumpkins and hay rides and all that kind of stuff but we've evolved into a very year-round business that uh we can entertain you pretty much any time of year um we're uh just opened uh in the last month our our beer garden reopened so uh that's open and it's a uh we do live music in the beer garden and uh you know that's more of, of an adult venue but uh it's re- located right near the petting zoo so uh uh, families with little kids uh, get to enjoy both. and um, um, So we're very diversified, and we've got a, a cafe um, as well, and we're, we're um, selling a lot of craft beer as well as our own hard cider that's being made for us at the moment. Um, that's going to be, be brought in-house. That's our next uh, venture is to put up a cidery here on the farm. So, we have a lot of moving parts, and uh, yeah, it scares me how many are moving, and you know, you got to make sure they're all moving in the right direction. And uh, we have great, great employees here on the farm and full time employees, full time staff that works year round for us now.
2: Oh, man. Well, definitely uh, a lovely landscape. Steve, we only have uh, a couple of moments left here, but I was hoping I might be able to take you through a couple of rapid fire questions, uh, just take your temperature in a couple different spaces in the farm. So. Sure. Uh, favorite ice cream flavor?
1: Favorite ice cream flavor remains to be vanilla.
2: Oh, classic. So favorite spot to hang on the farm or or, or get a, a quiet moment or a rowdy moment? What's your, like, go-to kind of recharge well, space? we have
1: a spot up on top of the farm called The Tree, and it's where we watch the sunset from, and it's when we need to get away from the rest of the traffic that's around here. We uh, shoot up there, whether it's uh, just me and my wife, Jill, or us and our kids, or us and some, a bunch of our employees sometimes get on the back of the pickup truck, and that's where we
2: hide. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, um, What about, you feel like, the most kind of uh, underrated activity, the fun thing that you can't believe more people don't do when they come visit you guys?
1: Oh man, the most fun activity that people do can do that don't do. Well, you know, like I said apple picking is 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 the primary function in the fall at and pumpkins um and the hay rides and people tend to come here to do that. So, um, you know, I mean, we're not it's not like um such a big place that we have uh hidden hidden opportunities. I think when you come you see what we got and most people take advantage of most of it. they'll, you know? sit in the beer garden, listen to music for a while, they'll browse through the garden center, they'll, uh, 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 you know, get something to eat for sure um, at our cafe because we have a lot of great food coming out of that. And uh, sip on our great uh, craft beers that we uh, bring in from all across the the country. Um, You know, we we still bring in a a lot of regional New York State beers, but we also bring in beers from uh, Colorado, California, Oregon, all over the place. So,
2: Wow. So I think for me, probably the biggest challenge would be figuring out the order in which I wanted to do that stuff.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Well, you know, most logically, you should come in and browse through the garden center and do your shopping and then get settled into something to eat and then... And then uh, savor some of the craft beers that we serve and uh, uh, local wines as well as California wines. <laughs>
2: oh man, I probably would go for ice cream first, but that's just me. Well, um, that's right. Ice cream for <laughs> ice cream
1: for uh, for breakfast is a is a fine thing. There's yeah, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, do it like
2: the Italians. Put on a brioche. Well. Um, I want to give a big thank you to Escape Maker for both sponsoring the show and for turning us on to your great spot. And final question, um, what about for you and your family when you're looking to escape? Do you have a go-to off-farm spot?
1: Oh, when we need to escape, we usually go to the beach.
2: Nice. I'm going to do that this weekend. (laughs) Awesome. All right. We go the other way,
1: you know. We (laughs) see enough of the farm and we live on the farm and we're thinking about the farm all the time. Um, we do do some, uh, you know, work study up uh, uh, when we do some traveling, and we'll go upstate, New York, into the Finger Lakes. It's beautiful up there. My son just graduated from Cornell, and there's just awesome, awesome operations up there: wineries, breweries, uh, farm markets, pick-your-own operations. Um, and uh, speaking of which, this weekend we have a very big function on the farm. We have our uh, fourth annual beer festival on the farm and it's a great event we have 35 breweries and five cideries going to be here so um, it's a it's a one price ticket admission it goes from two to six I recommend people take a drive up it'll be a great event um, music all afternoon it includes food so uh, look online at penningsfarmmarket.com and you'll find out uh, all you need to know
2: awesome Steve thank you so much for joining us it's been great chatting with you
1: yes I thank you very much, Aaron, and uh, let's hope for a great growing season, and uh, we're open seven days a week.
2: Awesome. So definitely check out Penning's Farm and a ton of other great getaways, whether you got a day, a couple of hours, the weekend, or something more luxurious. dot uh, com. want to give them a shout-out and say thanks for continuing to support the Farm Report and other great programs on the Heritage Radio Network this show like all 39 of our live weekly shows is available for free obviously visit our website www.heritageradionetwork.com or .org both work Um, we hope that you'll support our work be becoming a member click that donate tab and stay tuned in